This is Craig Dobbin. He's going to be our next speaker. Do you consider yourself to be a professional scientist? No, I'm not a professional scientist. No, no. Um, actually, my, my claim to fame as a science teacher was I think I was just dumb enough to be able to communicate to kids. Uh, I had, I've got 13 years of tertiary education uh, and it makes me a professional student, I guess. Uh, and when I got to choose which science I wanted to teach, I figured I'd teach um, physics because, not because it's the one I'd studied the most, but it's because the one that I had the most hideous memories of at school because <laughs> I had these teachers who were highly intelligent but couldn't communicate at all. And I tried to explain to them, sir, I do not know anything about this. They said, you came first in the exam. And I'm thinking, yes, but I, I saw last year's paper. So, you know, it was one of those things. Not very intelligent. Well, highly intelligent guys but couldn't communicate. Yep. Is it bad that the most I know about physics has come from watching the Big Bang Theory. Probably, yeah, that's very sad. Okay, yes. all right, yes. all right. okay. Um, as a teacher, as a science teacher, did you ever have any massive disasters slash explosions? Um, who was here on Monday? Do you know the guy who was here on Monday? That was one of my students. <laughs> he blew up the science... He's the only kid who ever blew up the science lab, actually. Uh, so did I create them? No, but I had students who did. Uh, Jacob Strickling, very dangerous guy, actually. All right, well, we're looking forward to hearing what you're going to talk about in terms of how science out there and around there and in here might change the way we perceive other things. Good on you. Okay, Thank well, you. Look, I hope you appreciate the fact of um, having seen Mark Hadley here yesterday. If you weren't with us, you won't understand what I mean by this, but Mark came up from Sydney, he dressed in really nice shoes, he had a blazer on and so I lifted my game for today. <laughs> I, uh, I went for the long pants but it was as far as I could go. Still got my favourite pair of thongs on. Um, this is the Central Coast after all. So, um, uh, Look, how many of you find science just utterly boring? Come on, be honest. I'm not offended. Go on, let's have it. Utterly boring. Yeah, okay. I'm going to try to be brief. Um, I'm, I'm picking up the issue today and you might have noticed if you've seen the, the notes on it. Uh, it's has science buried God? Now, that's a, that's a big question around the place, I think. Uh, on the hill um, overlooking Town Beach at Port Macquarie, do you know where I mean? There's a little observatory. Ever been up there and seen that when you've gone away on your holidays up there? Um, that's what we did one year. We took our kids for a free night, well, I think it was close to free, of looking through the, the big telescope they've got there at Jupiter and Mars and the Horsehead Nebula and a whole bunch of exciting things that you could do that night. And being a science teacher, um, which is what I was for a number of years uh, at the tertiary and at the secondary level, I had a thousand questions, uh, much to the embarrassment of my three children, uh, all of whom are daughters. Please, Dad, stop, don't ask any questions, don't draw attention to us like that. Um, and there were questions, of course, about the Big Bang, um, not the show uh, on TV, um, how it all began uh, 13.7 billion years ago. And right then our guide, the guy who guided us through everything that particular night, made a very interesting comment. He said, um, but talking about beginnings in astronomy is not something we like to do because if you've got to talk about beginnings, you've got to talk about how it all began. Now that begged a question, of course, and I couldn't help it. Despite my kids, I really had to ask. I had to ask, why is that such a big problem? 
And he was very candid. Uh, to this day, I'm not quite sure where he was coming from. He said, because it raises the question about God, and that's awkward. Now, it was a very honest kind of comment. Um, but it's funny that, that science and God are thought to be on opposite ends of the spectrum. They're thought to be um, opponents in some fashion. That hasn't always been the case, you might realise. Um, hasn't always been the case. In fact, many of the very great early scientists or scientific heroes were prompted by their belief about uh, God, uh, the, the, the Bible's kind of idea about God actually, to pursue their scientific study. Uh, there are people like, this is a big flashback to school, let me throw you some names, Isaac Newton, remember that? Um, uh, uh, Kepler, uh, Boyle, um, Faraday, Maxwell, uh, um, a bunch of those kind of guys, Copernicus, um, many, many more of them. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. It's because belief in a created God of some sort who's faithful uh, in, uh, in preserving what he's made meant that scientific study was actually worthwhile. You could get something out of it. Um, it was valuable. Um, it was honouring. Uh, and it was exciting. And it's why, if I can put it that way, it's why, historically speaking, uh, scientific discovery and technology arose in the Western world, um, not the Eastern world. Uh, it's, it's because in the Western world there was belief in a single creator uh, who was faithful to his creation. It's why, actually, if I can put it this way, um, it didn't arise in Asia scientific investigation, which is not to say discoveries didn't take place. It didn't occur in places where they believed in many gods. It, believed in place, it, it arose in places where there was a belief in one god. Now that was interesting, actually, because it means that science and, uh, and um, the belief in God haven't always been opposites, um, though they're often thought to be opposites. Um, and it's fair to say, actually, that science has arisen from that kind of belief in the first place. So then has science disproved God? Now I think that's the question people are asking today. As I speak to people, lots of people make the assumption that, and that might be where you are, in fact, this morning. I was at a barbecue recently and, um, and the conversation turned to, you know, as it always does when you're at a barbie, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm the pastor of a church. I teach, I teach the Bible. I teach what it means to follow Jesus. Have you got opinions about him? And here was the answer. Um, it's kind of the answer that I've, I've had more than once. It was, look, I tend to be a logical, scientific person, so I don't really go in much for belief in those kind of things. Now, I'm not a genius, but I think I joined the dots on what that answer was saying. I think it was saying um, science uh, and logical uh, logical thought doesn't fit with the idea of God uh, and I think really the subtext of that is probably you're a little bit gullible Craig um, but as common as that view is it actually doesn't work there is something more complex going on than that because everywhere you find um, well credentialed scientists on both sides of the debate uh, you find scientists who don't believe like Stephen Hawking how many of you know who that 
fellow is. Probably the most famous physicist in the world today and probably will win the Nobel Prize at some point. His first wife actually was a Christian, a very serious um, believing Christian woman. Um, and on the other side, you find scientists who do believe, like Francis Collins. Now, he's the guy who's been behind the whole project to map what our DNA looks like. Well, he's a Bible-believing Christian. Um, in fact, Albert Einstein, you've heard that name, I'm sure, put it like this, very interestingly. He said, everyone who's seriously involved in the pursuit of science becomes convinced that there's a spirit manifest in the laws of the universe, a spirit that's vastly superior to that of man. Now that's, a, that's an interesting comment from a fellow who surely was actually in the 20th century, right at the coalface of scientific discovery. So it's not as if God's been buried beneath this enormous avalanche of evidence. And I think that's what most people think. So... Why do most people think that science and God just don't fit together? Now, do you want the easy answer or the hard one this morning? I want to give you the easy one. I'm going to do the hard one on Sunday. Um, not because it's going to be longer on Sunday, but it's going to, be, um, going to pick up a different dimension of it for you. But here's, here's the easy one. Here's one of them. I think it's actually because most of, ideas, most of our ideas about science and what science knows are actually now very, very old, very, very outdated, like 40 to 70 years outdated. Um, see, what do you remember from school about all this stuff? What do you remember from school about evolution? Nothing. It was a terrible memory for you. <laughs> you were just so glad it was over and done with. Um, what do you remember about the Big Bang Theory, not the show? because that will be firmly in your mind. The truth is, all that's changed so tremendously quickly. Over the last, literally, um, gee, 40 years, uh, once upon a time we thought the universe was very, very simple. Um, when Charles Darwin um, pro first proposed his theory of evolution, which wasn't the first theory of evolution, which was about 150 years ago, if you're wondering when that was, we didn't know... We didn't know about genes in cells, not the ones you're wearing. Um, we didn't know about chromosomes. We didn't know about DNA. Um, we didn't even know those things existed. We didn't even know there was a nucleus in the cell. We just thought the cell, the cell in your body was just an amorphous bunch of junk and there was nothing much very interesting that was in there. Um, but, but when evidence began to appear that seemed to support Darwin's theory, and there's good evidence for it, it was actually very good evidence for it. People grabbed hold of it very quickly, thinking that it explained all of life and thinking actually very quickly that um, maybe we've just all evolved from apes, as was the quiet suggestion that Darwin first made, that, um, that we human beings, are just, we're just one more animal in the vast kind of pantheon of animals in the, on, the, on the earth. And we're a bit more advanced than some, sure, yes, uh, but we're no more special and we've got no great purpose and we're not meant for any great future and we don't have any great hope. Um, and um, when we die, we will simply cease to exist. And, and we began to gather some evidence that supported that idea. Um, and when we discovered that cells contain... Let me just do a quick thing with you. Where do you find genes, chromosomes, in a cell? Hands up for that one. 
Oh, you're a chemist. You can't do this. <laughs> Anyone know? Yeah. Yeah, they're in the nucleus. That's right, yes. And so um, chromosomes are a long string of genes. They're contained in the nucleus, uh, made up of DNA and all that kind of stuff. But when we discover that cells contain genes, and genes actually shaped who you are, what you look like, you know, if you've come from Greece, you've got the skin that says you've come from Greece, and if your parents were tall, you're, you're going to be tall, and that kind of thing. Um, when we discover that genes shape what a person actually is, and genes could mutate, now you know what that means, they change in some weird way, we figured, well, that's, there's the explanation. That's how you end up with different kinds of beings. The genes mutate, so new creatures evolve, and we thought we knew it all, actually. Um, now, this is only as little as, gee, back in the 1950s, um, 1960s, even 1970s. And we decided that life began in a shallow pond. You've heard that? You've heard the expression, the primordial slime? Yeah, everyone's heard that kind of expression. That's where it came from. It was the idea that there was a bunch of stray chemicals in a pond struck by lightning, and that lightning provided the energy to build the basic building blocks of life, little things called amino acids, which are kind of the building blocks of proteins. Um, and then when the Big Bang Theory came around, now are you yawning yet? <laughs> now the Big Bang Theory, when that came around, that was kind of proposed way back in the 1920s, late 1920s, but the evidence for it came only in the 1960s, evidence that supported it. Um, and when we saw that, the universe just came from, can you believe this? something as unimaginably small as the head of a pin exploded in some great explosion. That's my phone going off. It just does it every time I get up to speak. Um, when, when, when we found evidence for that kind of thing, scientists began to say, well, it's all, we're all just a cosmic accident. This has all just come about by random chance. There's no rhyme or reason, and there is no God. And we thought we knew it all, actually. Now, science has been down this road before. Do you know how long we thought the Earth was flat for? About 2,000 years. We thought it because of a man named Aristotle, lived in about 4th century BC Greece. His ideas ruled the roost until about the 1500s, and people like Galileo and Kepler and people like that came around. We've been down this road before. In fact, a very famous hero in science, a man named Lord Kelvin, uh, um, and Richard will know about Kelvin because of the Kelvin scale of measuring temperature. Um, he's one of the heroes of science, uh, science. He made this statement in about 1900. He said, There's nothing new to be discovered in physics. All that remains is more and more precise measurements. That is, it's all out there. We know everything that there is to know. Now, he wasn't being arrogant. At least that is what he was reported as saying. Um, he wasn't being arrogant. He was just saying what we really thought. Um, but what's happened over the last 40 to 50 to 60 years is we've learned so much more. We've actually learned what we don't know um, and actually worked out that life's far more complex than we first thought it was. We learned, first of all, life didn't begin in a pool, at least not with those chemicals that we thought were there because those chemicals almost certainly weren't there when the early Earth actually began. Um, and then we found the troubling news that, you know, if you've heard about the missing links, because what Darwin had proposed was there's a tree of life, everything comes from just these 
um, minute beginnings and branched and branched and branched and branched to give rise to all the life we now have on earth. Well, we found out, actually very recently, that that's almost certainly not true. If, they, if anything, there's a bunch of bushes that you know, have given rise to life, but there's no branching tree. And, and then we found that you know, if you've got this tree that branches and branches and branches, with all the creatures that have ever lived morphing from one into another, what sort of, what sort of skeletons, fossils, do you think you'd find? Well, all those branching skeletons and fossils was one morphs into another. But the troubling thing for Darwin in 1859 was he made the comment, I realise one of the strongest issues that contends against my theory is when we haven't found those transitional forms yet. I'm hopeful and confident that over the next hundred years we will, but we haven't. We actually haven't found those things. Now that's not to say all that's untrue. It's just been troubling in the background. And then we learned um, that that idea of, uh, you know how you saw in your science lab that picture of um, monkeys, apes, giving rise to various kinds of human beings and it looks so neat? Then we found that's actually much more complicated than it, we really thought back in the 1970s. It's almost certainly not true. If there's any truth to it, it's more complicated than that. And then, then we found the electron microscope. And what the electron microscope is? changed everything because he started looking into cells and finding out they're not actually what Darwin thought they were, just amorphous bunches of nothing. And then we learned how complex a protein is, really complex. Um, and then we worked out how many proteins it makes to make a cell. And then we worked out how complex the code is that makes a cell divide into two, unimaginably complex. Uh, and then we found out that when are those, one, one of those things mutates, you don't get another creature that's fully functioning and going to go out and drink and fly and <laughs> do all those kind of things. You, you end up with a creature that's almost certainly not viable for life. I had a, I had a child, one of the very first science te um, classes I taught, he had cystic fibrosis. It was, it was the mutation of a tiny gene that he was not expected to live much past the age of 21 because um, almost all mutations are devastating. Very few ever survive. Then we did this. Just in the last, actually, um, 20 or so years, we mapped human DNA and we compared it to earthworms and apes and rabbits and chimpanzees and, um, and we found how similar we were to them. And that was a bit of a surprise. It seemed to add fuel to the idea that, well, maybe we have just evolved from apes after all. Um, and we concluded that lots of our DNA is just junk because we only measured little parts of it. And so we concluded we've got 97% of our... The, the chromosomes in our body are made up of just junk. doesn't really do anything. Guess what we found about three or four years ago? It's not junk. It's actually really sophisticated. It does all sorts of things about teaching your DNA how to fold and how to cause it to form proteins. And We found that out just three or four years ago. Got what I'm saying here? Everything's changed so quickly, except our science textbooks. 
<laughs> which is because the basic teacher in the classroom, no offence, how many teachers we've got here today that I'm about to offend? Okay. The, the basic science teacher in the classroom is often so far behind the cutting edge of what's taking place and our textbooks are further behind. Um, then we look more deeply still. We look into the universe. Um, we look closely into the cell and into atoms and we found this incredibly spooky, unbelievably um, unimaginable thing. The, the fine-tuning of the universe for life. It was, it's a thing called the anthropic principle. Anthropic just means it's, it's made for human beings. I'll give you, a couple of an, uh, give you a couple of examples before your eyes roll back in your head. <laughs> and you're, you're thinking, oh man, this is just too much of a brain strain. It's like biology at school. Let me see if I can give you a couple. Um, you know the force of gravity that's around us all the time? If it varied, the force of gravity, by one part in... Um, I can't even give you this number, it's so unimaginably large, but if it varied by one part in a billion, 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 etc., then stars and planets couldn't exist. So we, we actually couldn't, they'd never assemble themselves. Um, the only creatures that could exist would be flattened to the, um, the surface of a planet if gravity were too large, too small, and all life would simply cease to exist. It wouldn't ever assemble itself. Um, the, the protons in an atom. Now, you know what protons are? What kind of a charge has a proton got on it? Just as a test. Beautiful. Yeah, it's got a positive charge. Electrons have got a negative charge. And you're meant to balance those two things out in an atom. But an electron is 1,820-odd times smaller than a proton. If those ratios varied by a smidge, which is a scientific term, you understand, right? Um, if it varied by a smidge, atoms in our universe could never assemble compounds or molecules or just couldn't do it. The, the, the physics of it wouldn't work. Um, or if the distance between the Earth and the Sun, if it varied, it would be far too hot for life if we were much closer, much further away, much too cold for life. Um, if the amount of... I won't bore you with any more. I'll give you a couple of quick ones. If the oxygen in our air varied, um, the amount of water in our air varied, it'd have a runaway greenhouse effect. If the Earth's axis tilted differently, and on and on and on and on. It's like Goldilocks. Remember Goldilocks? She goes, yes, you remember that one. <laughs> you know, she walks through the forest, she finds this house, she goes inside, and there's the bowls of porridge, and there's one that's just right. The anthropic principle is saying, it's almost spooky that there's a place in the universe that's just right for life. The chances of that occurring are unimaginably, un incredibly small. In fact, it's been illustrated like this. Take a, take a handgun, place a coin on the other side of the universe, fire the gun, hit the coin. That's the chance that these things actually took place by accident. What scientists are beginning to find is there's a, there's a design, a complexity in the universe which is mind-boggling. Brings back to the question about God. Still with me? Has science buried him under an avalanche of evidence? No, far from it. Um, far, far from it. Actually, 
don't be frightened by science if you're a believer in these things. And, and some of you are wrestling with these things, I realise that. And some of you have actually kind of closed off on these things, and that's fine. Um, but you needn't be worried about science. What science is actually doing is demonstrating more and more evidence about how complex the universe actually is. A very famous scientist who was one of the pioneers of quantum mechanics, which nobody understands. Like You've got to be seriously smart to understand that stuff, and I don't think I do. Um, Werner Heisenberg, his name was. He put it like this again, very candidly and helpfully. He said, the first gulp from a glass of natural science will turn you into an atheist. But at the bottom of the glass, you'll find that God is waiting for you. And do you hear what he's saying? The deeper you drink, not just if you drink on the surface, but the deeper you drink, you find actually the complexity of our universe is arguing, not for a God of the gaps, if you've heard that term before, but it's saying, no, there's an intelligence at the heart of things that is entirely inexplicable for our modern science. We've got no answers for it. In other words, um, the more you look, you find there's a designer and that evidence is overwhelming. Science operates at the most basic level. It can tell you, like, it can tell you the ingredients of the cake that you got at morning tea. How much sugar, how much salt, how much of something else. What it can't tell you is, why did they make that cake? Who is behind it? What's the purpose of it? Uh, and how do those ingredients even exist in the first place? That is to say, God operates at a whole different level of explaining why science is possible. Why we can even do it. Now, let me make something really clear because I'm about to finish. Um, none of this means that evolution is all a lie. None of it means that. None of it means that your science is just a joke. It doesn't mean that. And none of it means you ought to be frightened by science. Um, if God wanted to use the evolutionary process to, um, to fine-tune, to bring about elements of creation, what's to stop him? What's to stop him? He's used geological processes. He's used gravitational processes. Ladies, he even used some mysterious process to attract you to your husbands. Who knows how that worked? <laughs> but he can do any of those things if he wants. It is no problem for him. So why do people think science and God are enemies? Well, oddly enough, there's a clue. Um, in a little campaign that was run, um, gee, about five years ago in Britain by the British Humanist Society, uh, they paid thousands and thousands of pounds to emblazon this emblem on the side of buses in uh, London and around England. Um, and the slogan said, there's probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. Probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. Now friends, I think that begs a question. Because <laughs> if no God means you can stop worrying, what does the possibility that there is a God mean? I hate to say that you ought to worry. I don't mean to say that. Um, but surely it means that the possibility of that existence, which actually our science makes more and more evident, um, means there's something that you actually ought to consider. There's something we actually ought to um, 
consider and take some action on. If he's for real, do you know, um, if this God that Jesus speaks about and describes is real, he communicates, he lives, he loves, he gives, he cares about evil, he cares about good, he judges and he rescues. Then here's the kind of simple thing as we come to the end of this week and I'm happy to take a thousand questions in a moment. He, it's his world. He's, he's made it. He's made it glorious and wonderful and beautiful. Um, he's, um, he's given it shape and meaning. Uh, he's given it hope and purpose. And therefore it only makes sense to find out quickly how ought I to relate to him? How ought I to relate to him? And that's exactly what Jesus was on about. It's exactly why he came and spoke. Surely it's something to check out. Even to, if it's simply to know as an intelligent thinking adult, phew, it's not true. Don't have to worry about it at all. Or to find out actually that it is true. And I ought to do something about it for the sake of my kids, the sake of my family, and the sake of myself. I ought to do that. So why don't you? Why don't you do that? Um, join us for the summer series. I think on your table you'll know that the, um, there's a card there. Thanks. I haven't got it here, but Lee will hold it up. Um, the first topic we're looking at this weekend is God and evolution which I didn't just do then. I deliberately tried not to do that to you. Uh, thanks for that, Patrick. There's, um, there's a bunch of topics on there. We're going to just sim simply think through the big topics that our community around the coast wanted to know the answers to, and there they are. So I'd say, why don't you join us for the summer series? Starts this Sunday. Um, or come and join us for life. It could be the best decision you ever made. But one way or another, it's a sensible one. So I'm done. Thank you. Thanks to Craig. Okay, I can honestly say that's the longest thing I've heard about science and my head does not hurt. Well, that's a relief. Yeah. Will my head hurt on Sunday if I come to... Mm, I'm going to try to speak briefly, um, shorter than I would on a Sunday, and I'm going to try to have enough time for questions because I think it'll produce lots of questions. So That's great, thank you. Um, and just another question about life. Do you get cake there? Do I get cake, cake there? there? You do get cake there. Oh, right, yes. okay, yeah, yes. cool. That makes it okay. Okay, right. so life um, will start on the 8th of February and it uh, will happen on Wednesday evenings down at Ocean Beach Surf Club. Correct, yep. And, uh, yeah, and there's cake. Okay, now, there is not time for a thousand questions. However, this is Craig Dobby, who's the pastor here. Uh, we meet in the hall and we know where he lives. So if you've got loads of questions, we can ask him. Um, has anyone got any questions now that they want to... Merrily? Yeah, Merrily. Yep. Look, I, I, um, I did bring a book that... Um, one of the difficulties for people is our science is such a long time ago and the science you teach in the classroom for kids is it's pretty basic stuff. And, um, 
And so you kind of need, when you're reading this stuff, you need a basic level book that's not going to stretch you too far. This is a um, book by a fellow named John Lennox. Uh, it's God's Undertaker has, got, has Signs Buried God. Um, so you can see it's very apt for this particular talk. He's a uh, professor of mathematics at Oxford University, but that's a, that's a pretty simple book and it's fairly easy to get your head around. But it is mind-blowing, yeah. Thanks, yeah, it's a good question. Carrie. Yes. Yeah, I'm going to try to. I'm, yes, um, you, you get these. You get very sweeping statements. So where do you find the information that gives you the gist of it? Really, it's actually very difficult, if I can put it that way. Um, so without evading the question, let me get behind the question for a bit and come back to it. Um, I went into science, a, 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 um, a career in science, because I like sport, <laughs> and I wanted to be a, um, a sports doctor, and so. Um, it was kind of a circuitous route to get to where I really wanted to be. It was sport that was my interest, not, not science. But I assumed that science was this objective, dispassionate discipline that simply was interested in the truth and putting it out on the table for people. But the truth of the matter is, you know this with any discipline, don't you? Imagine I'm the head of science at the University of New South Wales and I have a particular view about science. And I've been... And about dogs. <laughs> And I've, and I've been given a, something I've said is upsetting, and I've been given a grant to study a particular discipline. Well, actually, now what happens is there's a whole bunch of things that determine what view of science I teach. And that shapes lots of scientific um, information. So it is very hard to get at the gist of it. Now, one of the things I'm going to point out on Sunday is um, one of the things that shapes our view of science at the moment is the worldview of materialism. So for the very first time in all of our scientific, well actually probably the second basic time in all of our scientific history, a worldview shapes what we say about science. I'm going to read you a little quote, which is um, by a scientist named Richard Lewinton. Have I got time? Sure. No. <laughs> That's the answer. Um, he's, a, he's a geneticist from America. And he makes this astonishing comment about materialism. This is the difference between a philosophy on the one hand and science on the other. So, see if I can get this across for you. Uh, he says, um, Our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. Listen carefully on this. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, 
in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories because we have a prior commitment to materialism. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenon of the world, but on the contrary, that we're forced by our a priori, that means in advance, um, adherence to material causes, to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations. He goes on to say, um, the, the truth of the matter is, we can't let a divine foot in the door. Now, see if I can interpret that for you. He's saying that when science, do you know how for every, you know, for some people every, they think of themselves as a hammer and everything they see is therefore a nail. Um, if, if in the scientific community we're committed to material explanations, it means as soon as we find something that doesn't fit that, it takes a very, very long time for that new evidence to overturn the existing paradigm. And that's where we are, carry at the moment. That's why it's very hard to get um, additional information on it, uh, unless you speak to people who are at the coalface in scientific discovery. It's why at the popular level TV shows, you get the popular statements about science and its explanations. And it takes a very long time for a theory like that to change. It took 2,000 years to change Aristotle's view. Long time, yeah. Probably worn out my welcome there now. Not at all. Not at all. Um, anyone here remember black and white television? Anyone remember Julius Sumner Miller? What did he say? Why is this so? So that's my philosophy. That's it. That's as scientific as I'm going to get today. Sounds like it. <laughs> but... Um, any, anyone got one more really simple question for Craig? Oh, James. Go simple, man. I like it. Yep. Where do I get... So, so James is just asking about... Um, Craig mentioned the theory that... Oh, yeah, so da the Darwinian theory yes. of life forms in branches. So life yep. develops so in a kind of branch. So my biology text was called the tree of life based on that sort of assumption. Um, but what scientists are finding is that very little um, change seems to be possible um, between uh, one species and another. So you don't really see very much evidence at all, if any, of one species morphing into another. Rather, what you see is creatures that have got some sort of minute change possible, because their genes allow minute change. So as you look at your kids, they're minutely different to you. And you know, Sometimes you do have all sorts of things happen when, um, when children are conceived with genes as they mix and match, um, but very little change is possible. So it's looking like, at the moment, could change, that you've got, branch of, you've got bushes of life rather than a big tree of life. Um, and it's because there's very little genetic change that actually seems possible. Perhaps that's a wordy explanation to say something really simple. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you. Let's say thank you to Craig. Thanks.